I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law does he meditate day and night. I will delight myself in thy statutes, and I will not forget thy word. Deal bountifully with thy servant that I may live, and keep thy word. Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of your Torah. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So for our uh, scripture, I buried my Bible. Here it is. For uh, our scripture for Yom Teruah or for the Feast of Trumpets, uh, we're going to kind of be uh, all over the place. Uh, so I think maybe the first place we're going to go is probably Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. So the title of today's message is, The Reason God Said, Let Us Reason Together. The Reason God Said, Let Us Reason Together, because we know that in Isaiah uh, chapter 1, verse 18, he says, Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. So that's going to be kind of the focus text of our message uh, this afternoon. So we've already read the scriptures prior regarding the Feast of Trumpets in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, as well as in Numbers chapter 29, verses 1 through 6. So I'm not going to go over those again. Uh, but the main focus of Feast of Trumpets is dealing with the issue of sin. Dealing with the issue of sin because 10 days later from the Feast of Trumpets is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonements. So sin is like carbon monoxide. Prolonged exposure will kill you. And we know that carbon monoxide is odorless and it's tasteless. So you don't even know that you're being poisoned. You just get sleepy, you eventually fall asleep, and you just never wake up. Now, thankfully, they have, we have the technology of uh, carbon monoxide detectors. So if there's a dangerous level of carbon monoxide in your house, that alarm will go off to alert you you've got a problem. Similarly, on Feast of Trumpets, the shofar blasts. That is our spiritual carbon monoxide uh, alarm. It alarms us and alerts us to sin because we've been exposed to this sinful uh, carbon monoxide, if you will, all year long, all throughout the year. Different places in different areas of our life, we're exposed to sin. It makes us lethargic. It makes us sleepy. It makes us dull. It dulls our senses. We become desensitized. We just want to fall asleep. You know, and, and, and spiritual things aren't as exciting as maybe they once were at the beginning of the year. So the shofar blast is our spiritual carbon monoxide detector that shakes us up and wakes us up. It's our alarm call. So year-long exposure to sin causes us to become spiritually lethargic and sleepy. The shofar is our alarm to wake us up to the dangerous situation that we are in. Once we are awake, we can do something about the sin that's slowly lulling us into the sleep of death. So I'm going to begin reading in Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 14. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 14. For everything, oh, that's chapter 5. Yeah, chapter 5, verse 14. For everything made visible is light. 
This is why it says, wake up, O sleeper. So we're talking about the trumpet, the shofar, the ram's horn, the blast of it, and how it's our spiritual wake-up call. And so it says, for everything made visible is light. This is why it says, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead. If we go to sleep and we're exposed to carbon monoxide, we're not going to wake up. We're going to be dead. Spiritually speaking, exposed to enough sin, we're going to die. Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Messiah will shine on you. So pay close attention how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise. Make the most of your time, because the days are evil. For this reason, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So if you don't understand what the Lord's will is, you're being foolish. And there's no reason that we should be foolish because we have the word of God. There's no reason that we have to, we should be ignorant. We can't claim freshman ignorance to the rules because we know them. We have them. We review them every Sabbath. So in verse 14, the Apostle Paul quotes from several places. He quotes from Isaiah 26, 19 um, and uh, uh, 52, 1 and 60, verse 1, where it says, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Messiah will shine on you. So once we're awake, spiritually, once we've been awakened, uh, we've been awakened. Um, we've got to go to court. Some people have a court date; their alarm goes off, and they're like, "Wait, what day is this?" Oh yeah, this is my court day. And so when they realize after the alarm goes off that they have a court date, then they're up. They don't really have to have coffee just because of the shock of having to show up in court is enough to jolt them out of their sleepiness. And they get a shower and get ready and they do whatever they have to do in order to go to court. But instead of a gavel, the shofar, the ram's horn, lets us know that court is in session. Now, it may seem weird I'm going in this direction that after we hear the blast of the shofar that we have to show up in spiritual court. But we get this from several places in Scripture. In Daniel chapter 7 starting with verse 9, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, it says, While I was watching, thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. So this is a picture of God sitting on the throne of the heavenly courts. His garment was as white as snow, and his hair uh, of his head was pure like wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands of thousands attended him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated. So that's what happens when the judge comes and he sits down on the throne. Then the rest of us who are in the courtroom can be seated. And that's what it says. The court was seated and the books were opened. Plural. Most of us are very familiar with the book of life. When we get saved, it said that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And when we get to heaven, if our name isn't found there, we go to hell or go to the lake of fire. So being saved gets our name written there. And that's the only book we're familiar with. But actually, there's up to six books. Because in Daniel, it says the books were opened. And then also in Revelation, in uh, Revelation, it talks about the books being opened. So I'm going to finish uh, what I was reading here in Daniel, picking it up at verse 11. It says, I kept watching because of the boastful words that, that uh, the horn was speaking. 
I continually watching until the beast was slain and its body was uh, destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. Uh, okay, jumping down to verse uh, 13. I was watching. I was watching in the night vision, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, and he was brought into his presence. So this is a picture of Yeshua, because the Ancient of Days is God, and one looking, looking like the Son of Man, coming on the clouds of heaven, approaching the Ancient of Days, being brought into his presence, is Yeshua, the Son of God. And that's what this is talking about. So Yeshua is our, our lawyer. He's our defense attorney, so to speak. So we see this court scene set up in Daniel, and it's kind of mimicked in the book of Revelation. So in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, this is kind of like the renewed covenant or New Testament version of the court, courtroom scene that we just talked about in Daniel. So in Revelation, chapter 20, uh, beginning with verse 11, it says, Then I saw a great white throne. And the one seated on it, the earth and heaven fled from his presence, but no place was found for them. And continuing on, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. The books, again, plural, the books were opened, and another book was opened, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books, according to their deeds. So a lot of people think that works and deeds aren't important. They are. They're very important. Um, you know, actions speak louder than words. We're not saved by our deeds or saved by our actions. We're saved by grace. But that doesn't exclude the importance of works and the importance of actions because we don't keep the commandments to be saved, but we keep the commandments because we are saved. It proves that we're subjects of his kingdom. It proves that we're prince and princesses of the Most High God. And we're obedient to the king of the kingdom. Now, uh, continuing on in verse 13, it says, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Sheol, which is hell and the grave, depending on how translators decide to translate that. That's why it's Sheol, because it's kind of a tough one to translate. And Sheol gave up the dead in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to their deeds. Now, I mentioned six books, and I already did a sermon on this, so if you want to look up my Shabbat Shuva message uh, called The Books of Heaven, I talk about the Book of Life, talk about the Book of Remembrance, I talk about the Book of Evil, I talk about the Book of Recorded Tears, and the Book of the Body, and the Book of Origins. And I detail that in that message, so I won't rehash that because that's another sermon for another time, uh, but we'll continue on. So... The judge just does not hear the facts and render a judgment. That's not all that God does. A judge, and a good judge, will try to help the accused and the condemned see the error of their ways and create a plan of correction. So a lot of times you'll get a guy that's in, in uh, before a judge, he's, he's a juvenile, and uh, you know he's been in uh, uh, you know juvenile homes, and he's just been in the system, and his life's going in the wrong direction, and he just does wrong all the time. And so the judge is like, "Okay, here's your record. It's a pretty long rap sheet, pretty long list. Now I could easily punish you for this, 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 that, and the other, and you've already been punished for some of it. But what can we do to prevent you from coming before me like this again? Not that I don't like you." But I don't ever want to see your face in here again because it's not good news when you're here. 
So a good judge will try to help the accused and the condemned see the error of their ways and create a plan for correction. I'm not sure how many judges still do this, but sometimes they'll have a talk with the accused saying, look, you're going down the wrong path. You need to wake up. You know, you need to, you know, you're, you're entering the real world and, and you're not playing by the, the real world's rules and you're, you're not going to end up in a good place. So let's set these things in place to help you to maybe prevent you from coming back to the same scenario and repeating the same mistakes. So our annual trial in the courts of heaven lasts 10 days and the court starts today. That's why I'm giving those devotions on Rumble about the 10 days of awe so we can really take time and really review the Ten Commandments and see if we're really applying that to our lives, really living it. I mean, we could probably recite it off the cuff, those of us who are raised in church, but do we really think about it and think about each one and how it pertains to our life and if we're being obedient to it? So not only are there sins of commission, which is what we think of when we think of sin, it means you're doing something wrong. But there's sins of omission, meaning that there's something right that's supposed to be done, but you don't do what's right. Not necessarily that you do something wrong, but you just don't do what is necessary, what is right. So that's just equally as much as a sin as a sin that you commit, like lying, cheating, stealing, etc. So our annual trial lasts 10 days. 10 days between the Feast of Trumpets and, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. After the books are closed and uh, uh, the books are sealed for, for another year. So each day, we review and meditate on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are put on two tablets. There's five on one tablet, five on the other. And so the first five deal with man's relationship with God, our relationship with God. We review our relationship with God for the first five days. The last five days, we deal with our relationship with each other, our relationship with our fellow man. So going to our focus verse in Isaiah, so Isaiah chapter 1, I think this is chapter, yeah, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, and we're going to read through 20. So it says, come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. So spiritually speaking, we're in the heavenly courts. We're standing before the judge. He's going to render judgment, but he wants to try to set us straight, try to help us out. And the way he does that is he reasons with us. Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as wool. Though they be red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of Adonai has spoken. So I want to take verse 18 and break it down. So it says, Come now, let us reason together, says Adonai. Though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool, or white like wool. Now in the Talmud, which is the compendium of Jewish knowledge, um, it also is a lot of commentary on the scripture. And it talks about the Feast of the Lord, and for the Day of Atonement, which is found in the Tractate Yoma, 41 A and B, there's this legend of the crimson wool around the goat's horns. So if you'll remember that on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, two goats are chosen. One is going to be the sacrificial goat, one is going to be the scapegoat. And the scapegoat 
has to, to tell the difference between which goat is which and they don't get the goats mixed up, a scarlet cord is wrapped around uh, the scapegoat. And legend has it that once the Day of Atonement and the sacrifice had been made, the scapegoat's crimson wool that was around its horns miraculously turned white. And the comment in Yoma 41 A and B is that, and they don't say after Yeshua's death, burial, and resurrection, but they say after a certain time that the scarlet cord no longer turned white. Now, why is that? Why would the scarlet cord no longer turn white? Because Yeshua died on the cross to cleanse us from our sins, which the scarlet cord represents. It's impossible to take crimson out of wool. Once wool is dyed, you can't undye it, just like you can't unscramble an egg. So it was a miraculous sign that told the priest in Israel that the sins of Israel were forgiven. But after a certain time that we know to be the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Yeshua the Messiah, after that point, the Yom Kippur's after that, that scarlet cord remained scarlet. It didn't turn white. And that was to say to the priest that Yeshua was our final sacrifice. He's the one who took away the sins. So the word reason, come let us reason together. The word reason in the Hebrew means to rebuke and correct and to plead with by reasoning, by a well-thought-out apologetical argument. So when you're reasoning with somebody, you don't point at them and dictate how it is. You're going to do this and you're going to like it. You're going to do this and this is the way it's going to be. No, you don't want to twist their arm and to force them in compliance. You want them to willingly be compliant. Because if they're willingly uh, compliant, it means they agree with you, they see your argument, and they, they become repentant. So the Lord says, come let us reason together, says the Lord. He wants to rebuke us, but in that process of rebuke, he wants to give us a correction, but he's pleading. And he's pleading with reasoned, well-thought-out apologetical arguments. Come let us reason together, says Adonai, though your sins be as scarlet. This word scarlet it is a dye that comes from the female uh, Cocos elicus, probably pronounced that wrong or butchered that, but it's an insect whose body, when dried, uh, would be crushed in order to yield a scarlet color that was used to dye fabrics. And so that's what this word scarlet means in Hebrew. Uh, okay, come let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. So we know that snow represents purity, represents purity, it represents clean, uh, cleanliness, uh, cleanliness and righteousness. So it'll be white as snow. Now we know only God can do this because you can't, you know, that's like snow. If you pour red dye or, or red Kool-Aid in snow and make a snow cone, you know, and it better be Kool-Aid, don't ever eat yellow snow. It's not lemon flavored, I guarantee you that. So if you pour red Kool-Aid on snow and make a snow cone, you can't take that Kool-Aid out of the snow and make the snow white. It's impossible. But God can do that. God can take the scarlet out of the snow. So he says, uh, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow, as if you never sinned. And it says, though they be red like crimson. And this word red is interesting. This word red is the word Adam. But Hebrew has like the word Adam. 
certain vowel marks, you pronounce it Adam, which means red earth man. But if you change some vowel points, it's pronounced Adam. Adam is the word for red. It's the same letters as Adam, but it's pronounced differently. And it's also where we get the word Edom, which was another name for Esau. So Adam or Adam means red earth man, and it symbolizes our fallen nature that we cannot change in and of ourselves, just like you can't undye wool. So it says, um, though your sins be as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they will be white like wool. So it's God reversing that process. We've been sullied by sin. And we can't undye ourselves, but he can. So we know that snow is pure and wool is white, depending on how good the shepherd is. So a shepherd's reputation was hinged upon the whiteness of the wool of the sheep. So we all know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. Why does he make you lie down in green pastures? Because green pastures has the nutrients that will keep the wool of the sheep white. If you run across a shepherd where the sheep has yellow, dingy wool and there's twigs and burrs and briars and, you know, just junk in it. Oh, you did? Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow, the Lord's bringing things together. Yes. So if you see a sheep like that, it doesn't mean they've got a very good shepherd. But if you see a sheep whose wool is white because the shepherd leads these sheep into green pastures. It gets the nutrients that it needs in order to keep its wool white, not yellow and dingy. So, uh, uh, um, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. And I already explained that in past sermons where a sheep's nose is parallel with its mouth. If it was in running water, it would stick its snout down in the running water and the water would go up its nostrils into its lungs and it would drown on dry ground drinking water. So he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So it's in the valley in the dark places where the snakes and scorpions and lions and tigers and bears lurk. But the shepherd has the crook to uh, the staff to uh, bring back the sheep when it strays a little too far out of reach. And the rod, uh, which was basically like a mace, it was a stick with a stone on the end of it to bop these uh, critters in the head whenever they tried to take one of the sheep. So thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. So whenever there was a nice field that the sheep could graze in, or there was a plateau, the shepherd would go ahead of the sheep and he would take his staff and kind of rummage through the grass that they were going to be feeding on to make sure there was no snakes and scorpions so that the sheep would be safe. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemy. Thou anointest my head with oil and my cup runneth over. So sheep can get nasty things happening to them. Flies go in their ears or their nose or whatever. And, you know, sometimes there's creepy crawlies coming out of the nose. Well, that oil would be put on a cup and placed on the snout and it would flush out, kind of like a neti pot, it would flush out all the impurities and all the bugs and stuff that, you know, is tormenting the sheep. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Also, like if there was any kind of lice or louse or any kind of bugs getting into the wool, if you anointed the wool with oil, it would get rid of all the eggs and the nits and the gnats and the bugs as well. My cup runneth over, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now, again, relating to the wool and to the crimson dye or staining of the wool, and only God can remove that, symbolizing he's the only one who can remove our sins. 
Jeremiah 2.22 says, Even though you wash with lye and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your iniquity is before me. It's a declaration of Adonai. So it's just another affirmation that you cannot get rid of your own sin. You cannot do anything to change yourself. It's got to be a total surrender and submission to God and allowing Him to do His work of grace in our lives that cleanses us from our sins. So I'm going to, I've already read Isaiah 1 18 through 20, so I want to focus on 19 and 20 of that passage, which reads If you are willing and obey, because the Lord is reasoning with us to change our ways, to surrender and submit to him and go to, go for his pr program or game plan. If you are willing and obey, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured with the sword. You're heading for destruction. For the mouth of Adonai has spoken it. So basically the judge gives us a choice because he created us to be free will creatures. We have a choice. And this choice is either repent or rot, simply put. We could repent, go along with this program, or we can kind of keep doing what we're doing and end up dying by the sword. We rot. So that's like symbolizing the first set of commandments, uh, our relationship with God, getting things right with God. And once we get things right with God, we can get things right with our fellow man. So in Mark chapter 11, verse 25, it says, whenever you stand praying, now that kind of seems weird to us because we're used to getting on our knees. You know, especially in certain churches, they have kneelers on their pews. So what's this standing prayer? Uh, when you stand praying, it's a traditional posture of Jewish prayer. So it's called in Hebrew the Amidah. Amidah means the standing prayer. So three times a day, Jews will pray the Amidah for Shacharit, morning, Mincha, the afternoon, and Ma'arev, the evening. And it coincides with the three times of sacrifice during the day in the Levitical uh, uh, tabernacle temple system. So uh, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m. So Yeshua was talking to the Jewish people saying, I know you pray, and I know you pray th three times a day. So whenever you stand praying at 9 a.m., 3 p.m., and 6 p.m., when was Peter praying on top of the roof? He was praying at 3 p.m. during Mincha, during the afternoon prayers. So we see even the disciples keeping this tradition of praying three times a day. So when you, pr when you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven may also forgive you of your transgressions. So we can't pray three times a day if our heart is not right with God, first of all. And second of all, if our heart is not right with our fellow man. If we have something against someone else, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Okay. Keep my place here. All right, so I'd like to read to you from Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 23. Everybody still with me? Yes. yes. <clears throat> you guys are a quiet congregation, but hopefully that means you're thinking and not falling asleep, right? Yes. If anybody's falling asleep, I'm going to pull out, where is it? I'm going to pull out that ram's horn. I'm going to wake you up, right? There you go. Now I have a headache. <laughs> now you have a headache. All right, so Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 23. 
It says, therefore, if you are presenting your offering upon the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. So if we don't have things right with our fellow man, and we're trying to be intimate and have a relationship with God, God's going to be giving us the silent treatment. Huh? Oh, I, I hear somebody talking, but I, what? who is that? What? What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't hear you. There's a bad connection. I don't hear you. Well, why, Lord? Because you're fighting with your brother. You have something against your brother or your sister. Therefore, if you present your offering upon the altar, oh, Lord, I'm going to give you a sacrifice of praise. You know what? Your sacrifice of praise stinks in my nostrils because it's not pure because you haven't forgiven your brother or sister. Therefore, if you present your offering upon the altar, and therefore remember that your that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. And then, how are we to approach our brother or sister? Well, Yeshua tells us in Matthew chapter 18 beginning with verse 15. So if we're at the altar and we're praying and we're not getting anything out of it and it seems like God's ignoring us and, and you know we're not being blessed and we're like, okay, something's wrong here, something's not right, and then we realize, okay, I have something against my brother, that's why the Lord's not honoring my sacrifice, then Matthew 18 tells us the protocol of what we need to do in order to rectify that. So Matthew 18 verse 15 says, Now if your brother sins against you, Go and show him his fault while you are with him alone. So this is a private matter. If he listens to you, then you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word may stand. But if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to Messiah's community. And the implication is, the context is understood that it would be like the synagogue officials or the Messianic community officials. And if he refuses to listen to even Messiah's community, let him be to you as a pagan uh, or a tax collector. In other words, you don't fellowship with him, you shun him. So as long as you've done everything you can do to restore the relationship, and if the relationship is not restored after you've followed this protocol, then you can still go and worship even if it's things aren't reconciled because the ball was in your brother's court. You tried, right? So once Israel repented and made things right with God and man, the blood of the goat that was applied to the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant and the sins of, uh, of Israel's past were forgiven. But there's a problem, and the problem is found in the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 10, we see this problem that's presented, starting with verse 3. So it says, but in these sacrifices is a reminder of sins year after year. So we're specifically talking about the Yom Kippur sacrifice where the blood was taken only one time a year into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And then it says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what was the purpose of the blood of the bull and goats? It was like, it was like a, a credit card. The sins were forgiven because it was put on credit. So... It, it, was, it was paid for because you had the credit card, the blood of the bulls and goats, to pay for it. But we all know what happens with a credit card. At some point, the credit card uh, people will be calling and say, hey, you need to make your payment. you got to pay this off. And we don't have the ability or the process to do that because the, the blood of bulls and goats, it says, cannot take away sin. So Yeshua came along 
and he paid our spiritual credit card. He took the debt of sin away that was just being pushed back and pushed back and pushed back by the spiritual credit card of the blood of bulls and goats. So uh, it says, but in these sacrifices is a reminder of sin year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Um, all right, that's what I wanted to read there. So once we've repented and made things right with God and man, we apply the blood of Yeshua to our hearts. So we find that in Hebrews chapter 9, beginning with verse 11. And then it says, but when Messiah appeared as Kohen Gadol, which is the high priest. Now let's tackle this high priest thing really quick. So we know that the high priests of the temple and tabernacle were Levites. We know that Matthew 5 says that the law has not been done away with. So how can Yeshua be a priest when he's from the tribe of Judah and not from the tribe of Levi? What gives him the right to be the high priest, as it says in Hebrews chapter 9? The explanation is, is that there's an older, more authoritative priesthood called the Melchizedekian priesthood, which was the priesthood of the firstborn. So when Noah and his sons came off the ark, Shem was appointed as the high priest of the home and of the family. And so according to Jewish tradition, this is Melchizedek. And this is who uh, Abraham ran into after the whole big uh, fight with uh, you know, the big war where he rescued his nephew Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah and from, uh, from the captors. So um, this Melchizedekian priesthood is an older, more authoritative priesthood. Now, the reason that the firstborn couldn't be priest anymore is because all the firstborn participated in worshiping the golden calf, which negated their right to be firstborn priest. The only ones who didn't participate was the entire tribe of Levi. That's why God gave them the priesthood. So Yeshua is the priest of the order of Melchizedek. So it says, but when Messiah appeared as Kohen Hagadol, the high priest, of good things that have now come, passing through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, uh, he entered into the holies, holy of holies once and for all, not by the blood of goats and calves. Why? Because the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. It's no good. It's, it's about as good as a credit card. You eventually have to pay it off. It's got to be paid off. So he used his own blood, it says, but by his own blood, which paid off the sin debt, the spiritual credit card, having obtained eternal redemption. For his blood, for if the blood of, bull, of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Messiah who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the Day of Atonement is not a Jewish holiday or a Jewish feast. It is the feast of the Lord, according to Leviticus 23. So not only is it for the Hebrews, it's for the Gentiles who have been grafted in. So the Day of Atonement, 10 days from now, uh, is for all believers. The Day of Atonement is not a Jewish feast, but a feast of the Lord. It's for Jew and Gentile alike. It has not been done away with, and we read that in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to know what day it is, it's on Monday, and I know that's a problem because of Monday night meal. <laughs> uh, so Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, uh, tells us, 
Uh, okay, do not think, this is Yeshua's words, do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill, and that Greek word fulfill means to bring to its full and complete meaning and understanding so that you also can do it. It doesn't mean fulfill as fulfill and take away. Amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter, which is a yud in Hebrew, or seraph, which is a decorative flare on any given Hebrew letter, shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, which they were great at keeping the word of God on the outside, but not on the inside, and that's the point Yeshua is trying to make. It's got to be from the out, inside out, not the outside in. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, what an exciting day. You didn't know that you were going to go to spiritual court today. So we've got court for 10 days. So I suggest in your quiet time, your devotional time, that you sit down and, and look through the, 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 each of the commandments each day and just really grill yourself and be honest with yourself and say, where do I need to change in these areas of my life? Where do I need to ask the Lord for help to change me? So that I can be a better person, to, so that this can be a different year, a year where I'm turning over a new leaf. It could be a, a, a better year to where I can glorify God. All right, uh, let me close with the blessing of the reading of the of the word. But the word of the Lord endureth forever, for the word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing sunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and of the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And she is a tree of life to them that lay hold upon her and happy is every one that retaineth her. Heavenly Father, as this is a holy convocation, a solemn assembly, we have done our best in our limited knowledge to fulfill your commandments of meeting together and of hearing the sound of the shofar. And it's crazy how something tangible and physical and material can have effects in the spirit world. How just speaking and verbalizing the name of Yeshua puts demons on the run. How anointing the sick with oil, they're healed. And how the blowing of the shofar spiritually awakens us to the reality of the next 10 days. And Lord, they're not days to be feared. I mean, you are a fearsome judge. And because we're unrighteous, we're like Isaiah. Oh, Lord, I dwell amongst the people of unclean lips. And like Peter, oh, Lord, don't look at me. I'm sinful. Uh, because we're sinful, we, we can't stand to be in the presence of righteousness because we think we're going to be destroyed. But Lord, you are a loving and merciful God. You are that good judge that wants to point out the areas of our lives that need correcting. And you want to challenge us to lay them at your feet, to lay aside those sins, as Hebrew says, that so easily besets us so we can run the race, uh, so that we can uh, totally surrender and submit to you so that, as Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. And as he also said in another passage, I die daily, that if we surrendering to ourselves, we die to ourselves and we are resurrected in new life of Christ. Because, Lord, if we've kind of done the, the, the hard footwork during these next 10 days, the fast 
of Yom Kippur doesn't have to be something that's somber and sad and depressing, and it can be so joyous. And I know whenever I'm into you, like sometimes I'll get up and you'll inspire me with a sermon and I spend all day on it, and it's three o'clock and I realize I've never had a bite to eat. And I never got hungry. I never realized I was hungry. And Lord, if we are totally into you, Yom Kippur doesn't have to be a day of, oh, I can't eat anything, but it can be a day of, oh, I can just immerse my whole self in you. I don't have to be distracted by anything else. I can just totally throw myself at the Father's feet and just revel in that forgiveness, knowing that my sins are taken away by the blood of Yeshua the Messiah, the, the, the sacrificial goat, the sacrificial lamb. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we exalt you, and we ask these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.